0: Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders.
1: Woohoo! Woo! Yeah. There's the energy. <laughs> I am
0: Justin Burt, joined tonight with Dr. Krista Chu Manchu and our phenomenal producer, Dr. Cleo Rochat. Say hi, Cleo.
2: Hello. I'm so excited for this episode.
0: We are excited to have you, and you snagged an incredible guest for us. Dr. Travis Cook is here to discuss deep neck infections. Those are those pesky infections that present a sore throat, some neck pain. We talked all about it, but before we dive into that content, hey, Chris, can you tell us about the show?
1: Yes, but I'm not going to do it in a hot potato voice. So we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine.
2: We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Travis Crook. Dr. Crook is an associate professor of pediatrics in the division of hospital medicine at Vanderbilt. He is the director of the pediatrics clerkship and the director of the clerkship year, as well as the director of of the master clinical teacher program at Vandy. He has a passion for evidence-based medicine and more importantly, understanding why we do the things we do to care for our patients. He teaches us how to use anatomy to differentiate the source of infection, how you can drain a PTA, and what diagnoses you don't wanna miss.
1: I promise you, listeners, you will enjoy the show. You will not find it hard to swallow. <laughs> you're not going to drool hard while you're listening to it. I don't know. Dr.
0: Travis Cook, welcome to the
3: Siders. Hey, it's a happy to be. I'm, I'm just so glad to be here. I'm I'm thrilled that I've been asked
0: to be a part of this. Um, super super excited. We are lucky to have you and appreciate that you're a Cribsiders fan, uh, maybe the first fan guest. So we are extremely <laughs> yeah. excited to have you. Does that mean I a, get like
3: a free coffee mug or something? You, like, I, 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 it's in
0: the mail. It yeah. takes, <laughs> I need some swag. I need it. <laughs> you got it. Uh, the Cribsiders swag store coming to uh, a website soon. Um, you probably
1: we probably should uh, start doing
0: that. We, yeah, send, send swag, ideas. Um, I was am very joke. excited. Like, I want my swag. That, that's, that, that was not a passing joke. We'll make it happen. We'll make nope. it happen. We got, we got logos. Uh, Chris is taking notes. Uh, before we get to our new swag merchandise uh, uh, <laughs> store promo, uh, we would love to get to know you a little bit better. Our listeners would love to get to know you a little bit better. Dr. Travis Cook, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us where you're coming from, maybe something outside of medicine too that you enjoy. Oh, wow. Uh,
3: how far back do you want to go? Like, See, this is one of those questions that like, you don't know what to do. Like, when they say, who are you, right? And you're like, how deep is this guy? Or are they just like, I'm a doctor. Like, end of story. Um, high school. What, what, what were you? Sports teams, orchestra.
1: <laughs> school. Elementary school. Okay.
3: First crush. High, elementary school. So I went to Hidden Hollow. I was a road runner in elementary school. Um, no, uh, that's all true, actually. But <laughs> um, fighting road runners? high school, I was a sports person. That was what I did. I played every sport. Cross-country was probably my best sport, uh, cross-country track. Ended up being better at track as a senior once I finally grew into my body. Um, and my best time for the mile, I could run a 424 in the mile when I was a Holy. senior. Yeah, it was pretty decent. It was pretty decent. So I did sports uh, all through high school. And then I went to college and I realized that I am not nearly the athlete that I thought I was. Um, so then started focusing a little bit more on academics. Went to Clemson. I'm a Clemson Tiger, uh, diehard Clemson fan. Do have orange pants? They do make an appearance every once in a while. Amazing. Then went to med school. Uh, went to med school at Baylor in Houston, um, and then stayed there at Texas Children's for residency. And now I'm in attending pediatric hospital medicine by trade. Uh, worked at Vanderbilt, Nashville. I love my clinical medicine. I love working the residents. My other true passion I do is medical education. I do a lot of work with medical students in the School of Medicine. And now my time is roughly split half and half between doing clinical stuff and teaching. Um, so when I got asked to do this, it's like a marriage of all the things, right? Clinical medicine with education. What more could you ask for? Amazing. That's what we.
0: That's why we love to do it too.
3: Oh, and you asked for one thing outside medicine. Sorry, right. one, one thing outside. I mentioned Clemson Tigers. One of the things, and then growing sports playing up. One of the things, uh, I think Cleo actually knows this. I I, uh, give this fact when I always ask the residents when they're on service with me to tell me something interesting about themselves. To help put myself through medical school, I scouted high school football players for uh, Scout.com, which has now transitioned under ownership to different licenses. Uh, But scouted high school football players that came through and wrote articles on them. The best two players I saw in person, Matthew Stafford, um, now Super Bowl champion, um, had an absolute cannon of an arm. When I walked on the field, I was like, this kid can sling it. Um, and then Des Bryant's wide receiver, he was just on a different level yeah. athletically than everyone else on the field. He got pulled after the first quarter and a half because that's all they needed. What's the uh, number
0: one trait that you looked for in a high school athlete?
3: It depends on the position. Um, you know, if you're looking to offensive line, you're looking for you know technique, pad level aggression, but generally if you're just looking for athletes, because athleticism translates first. How much can you cover? How quickly can you cover the first 10 yards and how many steps does it take you at top speed to cover 10 yards? Mm. So those students, like so those athletes like uh, Des Bryant, right? They would cover 10 yards in the blink of an eye. And then when they're at top speed, man, it takes one, maybe two steps to cover an entire 10 yards at top speed. So you, you, it gives you a nice estimate of how much that athletic burst, that acceleration, and then their velocity at top end.
1: Nice. Wow. Wow. Well, my favorite question is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it?
3: Yeah, um, it's an awesome question. I love, I, I love the promotion of growth mindset, right? And so leading with that that question of failure, um, I think one of the things that we do as a disservice in medicine in general is that especially, you know, students attending it's our junior faculty, they look up to the senior faculty and they see all these people that have achieved things. My whole life is a series of failures. Um that's that's sort of how I've gotten to where I am. You know, thinking about this one, when I was three or four years into my attending career. Um, I took on a project for the residency program, and I found myself just stretched very, very thin. I had a lot of demands. I was being pulled in a lot of different directions. And this particular project just didn't align with some of the earth stuff that I was doing. And so it became harder and harder to devote the necessary time to it. And... It ended up being a product that I wasn't having fun with because I wasn't putting out the same kind of quality that I expected of myself and it wasn't good. It it was okay. It just wasn't excellent. And I had some really, really nice uh, mentors who actually kind of forced me out of that project. And at the time, it really, really hurt to think that, you know, I'd let the residents down, I'd let the program down, I'd let my mentors down and they had to take this thing away from me. I had failed. And just reflecting back, it, you know, it hurt and it was very raw for a long, a long time. But reflecting back on that, it was absolutely the right move. It allowed me to refocus. It allowed me to put the time and effort into the things that I want to do. It helped prune down into having the right things on my plate at the right time. Um, but it also really helped me grow and adapt as into my attending role and as as sort of taking on the lead role in a lot of things and making sure I was being mindful of what I was taking on, how I could commit to them. And it gave me some nice markers for when I'm not putting out the co- the quality of product that I want to put out what are those things going to look like for me? When am I hitting my
0: breaking point, my stress points, and so I can self-monitor better?
1: Right, right.
0: I think there's a great life. I feel like I struggle with that now, and I think that that's uh, uh, making sure that you are passionate and engaged about the stuff that's on your plate, I think is a is a good uh, uh, part of the growth mindset lesson. I, I love that.
2: Travis, do you have a pick of the week?
3: A
0: pick Ooh. of the week? Now,
3: that's a really vague question. What do you mean as pick of the week? Like, I mean... We're talking like my kids' nose. Like, where where are we going with this? Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, typically, just anything that has been exciting you this week, something that is new, something that's fun, something that you're enjoying can be really anything.
0: It can be a book, a TV show. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. give you some air times as you were thinking of uh, in the the scouting one of all my pick of the week. I'll say is a throwback to one of my favorite movies and books, Moneyball. Uh, oh, which was Ball. all about amazing. And I feel like it can be a great movie. It has Brad Pitt, uh, has a great cast, but very applicable to finding undervalue in any field. Um, so my pick of the week will be the the book and movie Moneyball.
3: Yeah. No, I think, you know, along those lines, uh, The I went back to a book. I've read this book a couple of times and I went back to it and picked it back up. Uh, the Obstacle is the Way. Um, oh, I see the reaction of Yeah, r- Ryan.
0: Um, Holiday. Holiday, there it is. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Absolutely fantastic book, and talking about growth mindset, right? And so it's a whole book about um, when you're presented with a challenge or an obstacle or a difficulty in your way, how do we leverage that for actually improving ourselves or to our advantage? Um, sometimes when you're presented with a challenge, it's an opportunity to rethink what you're doing or rethink the process that you have and come out with an even better outcome in the in the world. And so just sort of a mindset shift and sort of rethinking. It. It's it's a really easy read. It's a, if you haven't picked it up, I highly recommend it. Um, I Disclaimer: I have no financial relationships with that book whatsoever. Uh, but it's absolutely fantastic, and I think it's like my fourth time reading through it. So I, I've been reading through it this week again.
0: I bought some wow. copies and given it to friends and family. Actually, I yeah, I big wreck. Yeah, uh, Cleo, get that. You should get it, Chris. Cleo, did you You, 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 you
3: have read. Well, like you say it's 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 an easy read. Like it's an airplane read. Um, it's an easy read.
2: Um, I don't. I think everyone knows Wordle. Everyone knows the Daily Mini. Like those are those are usually my my picks of the week
0: i've gotten very boring with wordle i have a very clear strategy
2: that's
3: see jesse you're right there with me i talked about this uh and i was like wordle i did for like a month and a half and then i stopped when i missed like one or two in the first like couple tries to try and figure it out and then since then i didn't miss one i made like 70 in a row and i just i just quit i was like this is it's not fun
1: see i i don't do wordle and as xkcd says i am in the control group
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny yeah it's pretty split um all right so we, we this is great we had a lot of fun uh talking let's let's dive into some yeah. content uh uh Cleo why don't you uh, start us off
2: All right, so we have a case from Cashlack Children's Hospital. This patient, Flegmon, is a fully vaccinated 5-year-old presenting to the emergency department with six days of worsening throat pain. He initially presented to an outside clinic four days prior and was diagnosed with viral pharyngitis, and he had a negative rapid strep test at that time. Since then, he developed fevers to 1016 and has had persistent pain swallowing. He is brought to the ED today because his parents report that Flegg has had decreased ability to tolerate eating and drinking due to this worsening pain. He's been drooling and his dad has also reported that his voice is funny sounding. On exam, he has a temperature of 100.9, his heart rate's 135, and he appears uncomfortable with trismus and pain on neck extension. On HENT exam, he has erythema of the posterior oropharynx with no uvular deviation and no appreciable tonsillar swelling. So thinking about this case, Travis, we think about the neck and how much anatomy is contained within such a small area. And so when we're seeing these patients in the emergency department or in the hospital, and we think we may be concerned for deep neck infection, do you have a basic framework or approach to thinking about the neck anatomy and neck infections?
3: Yeah, uh, wonderful question. So if anybody here is an ENT that's listening to this, you go ahead and like pause or skip ahead in this recording um, because I'm about to horrify you with what I'm about to say because it's incredibly simplistic. Um, but in general, when we're thinking about this, we think about the potential spaces where we can have infection. Um, and when we're talking about deep neck, the first thing you want to do is make sure it's nothing anterior. So we're not, we want to make sure that we rule out submental below the, you know, the, the tongue and below the jaw and make sure there's nothing that you can see overtly in the mouth, oral mucosa. You want to make sure it's nothing periodontal, you know, things like that. So the first thing is just to make sure it's not in the mouth because that's a whole different ball of wax. Um, when we're talking about the neck. Really, there's kind of three different big spaces that we're worried about. It's all the potential space where you can have an infection. Bacteria get in, have a little party, and we have ourselves a problem. Um, and the first is sort of anterior lateral, right? And so you're looking at along the cervical chain, sternocleidomastoid underneath that, where your anterior cervical nodes run. Um, love Bacteria love to get into the lymph nodes. It's a preformed abscess just waiting to happen. It's got the nice architecture already built for it. Um, and so make sure that you don't have anything in that space. The second space is going to be peritonsillar. Um, and so looking at the posterior pharynx, looking for uvular deviation, looking for enlargement. I remember as a resident, the first peritonsillar abscess I ever saw, um, I went and presented to the attending and the attending says, it's a peritonsillar abscess. And I said, I don't think so. I, it's just really weird. I've never seen anything like this. The whole roof of the mouth looks swollen. Like that's a peritonsillar abscess. I was like, oh, got it. Right. So that's what you're looking for on that is you're looking for that distortion of the architecture Uh, in the back of the roof of the mouth. Um, And then the third place, which is the hard one because it's hidden, you can't see it, is the perivertebral uh, or prevertebral space, right? So retropharyngeal or prevertebral area. Um, And so those are sort of the three big spaces, and they're all defined because they're potential spaces. The lateral one, lymph nodes. The posterior one, you have the tonsillar structures, which are like big old lymph nodes that they can get in there. And the last one is the one that's really tricky because it's just a blank space. You have the vertebral column on the back, You have your pharynx and esophagus in the front, and it's surrounded by the perivertebral muscles on the side, which makes kind of a trapezoid of a potential area in the back. So those are sort of the big three areas that you're looking for. And when you're thinking about these things and looking for if there's something in those spaces, your physical exam is going to be key on that. A particular range of motion of the neck is what you're going to be looking for the most to
0: try and help distinguish between those three things. And so maybe should you walk us through as far as uh, if you're looking at that physical exam to try to do your first data point gathering um, based on the anatomy of kind of locating where a lesion might be. What are some findings? How are you doing the neck exam? And what are positive findings that would suggest one space versus the other? Wonderful. Uh, so you know, first thing you, you you think that you got
3: something in the neck. They're complaining of neck pain, or there's there's swelling, or there's redness, or they have fever. They're decreased range of motion in the neck. One of those things is saying, I've got to pay attention to this area. First thing you're going to do the external examination. If you see a big old Goomba on the side of the neck, right? Like that's an easy one, right? They have golf ball sitting there. You can see it. Things may not be that obvious. Sometimes they're a little bit more subtle. So you're going to be feeling. So feeling along the bilateral anterior cervical chain. So starting at the corner of the mandible you're gonna push the sternocleidomastoid a little bit up and out of the way. You wanna get underneath the belly of the sternocleidomastoid. A lot of people will feel on top of that and you'll miss more subtle notes. You wanna get underneath the belly, track right underneath the belly, and so you're feeling for any kind of firmness any kind of induration, any fluctuance, any tenderness, uh, your feel for warmth. And so you're feeling along that. If that's where it is, then that's where you're going to focus in. You don't feel anything there, then you're going ask them to open their mouth. Now, a lot of times you may get a limited physical exam because they may have some trismus. They may not be open all, open all the way. So you're going to have to negotiate as best you can. We talked about what the posterior pharynx will be at peritonsal. You're looking for uvular deviation. Um, so a mass effect is going to push it to the opposite side of where the lesion is. Um, you're looking for any kind of swelling, erythema, distortion of the architecture, asymmetry. You look back there and you're like, one side doesn't look like the other. Pretty simple stuff. The retropharyngeal, a little bit different. Again, you can't see it. You can't feel it. It's deep. That's why it's a deep neck infection. Um, so this is where range of motion comes into play. Now, when we talk about range of motion in the neck and we talk about tenderness, the big one that always jumps to mind is meningitis, right? So we talk about flexion of the neck, chin to chest. That hurts. Meningitis. Easy. Extension of the neck a little bit different. So, you ask the kiddo to look up at the ceiling and see if they can extend their neck all the way back. If they have a retropharyngeal space infection, inflammation, that's going to hurt like crazy. And it's not rocket science, right? Whenever you have pain with range of motion, all you're doing is compressing something that's inflamed. So, if I lean my head back, I'm going to bring my pharynx and my esophagus towards my spinal process, towards my vertebral bodies. And I'm going to activate those paravertebral muscles. All three of those things are going to work to collapse that potential trapezoid that we talked about. And it's going to compress that. And if it's swollen and inflamed, it's going to hurt. So extension of the neck is one of those big, big signs that you say, aha, that's a retropharyngeal abscess. There's very few things that hurt with extension of the neck. Lateral rotations, next one you want to have them do. So you're going to have them look to the right shoulder, look to the left shoulder. If they have pain on one of those things, then you should be suspicious of something in the neck. Looking to the side, like if you have them look to their right and they say it hurts on that right side, I'm much more worried about an anterior cervical process on the side because again, we're compressing that as we move to that side, which is physically we compress that side with the range of the motion. If it hurts opposite side, contralateral to that, I think more about peritonsor and that's stretching. As I look to the right, if my left side hurts is because I've stretched the posterior pharynx on the left side to make that hurt. And so that's one of the things that you can look at. Now, one of the things you should be always aware of is that occasionally retropharyngeal abscesses can be more unilateral than bilateral. And so occasionally you can be fooled by that and they'll have pain with that range of motion in the lounge. Just because they look to the right and they say it hurts on the right and then you go feel and you can't find anything on that anterior chain, you got to think a little bit about it being deep. And then the last one, just to round it out, which doesn't have a lot to do with what we're talking about, but side bending is one of the last range of motion in the neck, right? So touching an ear to a shoulder, going both sides. If they have pain with that one, trauma should spring to your mind. You should think about musculoskeletal on that one, the ligaments in the back of the neck, right? So flexion of the neck, meningitis, extension, retropharyngeal abscess, side rotation. If it's contralateral, you're thinking about peritonsillar. If it's ipsilateral, you're thinking about an uh, anterior circle chain. And then side bending, you're thinking about musculoskeletal trauma.
1: Fantastic. I, I love those. So simplistic, like nice and, nice and straightforward uh, pearls for us. Now, I, I, I want to sort of reel back a little bit because we jump right into physical exam. And, you know, with our patient here, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, painful swallowing mm-hmm. and things like that. What are some like red flag history things that we really need to pay attention to as we're gathering from, from the patient? And what are some of the things that will clue us into things that we need to be paying attention to for our physical exam?
3: You know, I absolutely love that you're reframing that, right? And so I think that the history is one of those kind of uh, dying things. We have so much you know, information from the electronic health records that we don't gather nearly the histories that we used to. I'm going to show my age here and be like, back when I was a med student and a resident, right? No, but like the history is so important. Um, and I think one of the things that's in the opening line uh, is what the third or fourth sentence or the fourth, or fourth word in fully vaccinated. Um, when we're talking about neck infection, now certainly any kind of infection, vaccination, if you have an incomplete or an unvaccinated vaccinated child, it opens Pandora's box a little bit for you. Um, but particularly neck infections, right? So we worry about a couple things. Haemophilus influenza being the big one. It vastly changes your differential and even what the pathophys that may be going on back there. So vaccination status has got to be one of them. Fever is a big one. You want to worry about the fever. And then tender, the tenderness of the neck. Um, particularly, and keep in mind that tenderness and pain are different things, right? Pain is what the patient experiences. Tenderness is what I elicit on physical exam. And those are different things. A kid who's got a painful throat, but I can't elicit tenderness, I'm probably going to chop that up to viral as well. I'm going to say, you know, this is a viral process. It's going to better. When I start being able to elicit tenderness, my suspicion for a bacterial process starts going way up. Um, you should not be able to create tenderness by palpating on their neck unless they've got something else that's kind of going on that should get your attention running. Acuity is a big one. In general, even deep neck, even retropharyngeal stuff is pretty darn quick. We're talking, you know, three days tops. Occasionally, you get some that may take four to five days of symptoms before they present for retropharyngeal. But it's usually pretty acute. And the anterior circle stuff, I mean, it's a day. And then it starts popping up and they're, they're coming on in to see you. Again, if it's something that's longer than that, it changes how I think about that patient, um, whether it's atypical infections or an alternative diagnosis or process. Um, so the time course, acuity versus that subacute or even into chronic B symptoms, again, because this is so acute, you really shouldn't have any B symptoms with any of this type of process. That's one of those things that should be you should always ask about. Head and neck cancers, while not as common in children as they are in adults, we still see them. Um, and so that's one of the big things that should remain on your differential. I think the other thing when I, when I hear a presentation and I start thinking about deep neck infections that I want to make sure I'm not missing something in differential is something that's along the autoimmune or rheumatologic process gives you swelling, right? It just gives you generalized swelling, which could reproduce a lot of the same symptoms or complaints. And so asking a lot of the questions are going to get you more down that rheumatological route and thinking, is this more just inflammation versus acute infection? And so asking those type of questions as well to drive at that type of process Um, is one of those things I think is is critical in your history.
0: So I think this is great because we're we're having already our differential approach of rheumatological, oncological, musculoskeletal, and then um, our focus of infections. And I... One of the things that I feel like I often teach or how I approach, and I, I'd like to hear your insight if this is uh, a reasonable framework, is can you talk about how age um, also kind of changes that differential, especially for things like the retropharyngeal abscess and some of these deep neck infections? Yeah, wonderful. Is that something that you put focus
3: on? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to with this one because it changes uh, what, what you think is going – and the likelihood ratios of what you think the diagnosis is going to be. And then just as a tangent, uh, Justin, you mentioned um, that we're already in the differential formation. and. I always teach you should be right. You, the moment you have a piece of information, you should be starting your differential. And each additional piece of information you get should be refocusing that, right? And so the moment I'm asking questions, I'm already having an active differential and synthesizing. Um, that's just part of the process I should go through. Age is a huge factor. Um, we talk about retropharyngeal or deep space infections. And you're talking about younger kids, the vast majority, vast, vast majority are going to be around that two year age mark. If you're over the age of four, and you're thinking about retropharyngeal, I would probably say you need to rethink your diagnosis. It's not that we don't see it. We do. We see teenagers with retropharyngeal abscess. They get sick. It's just rare, right? And so now you're talking about an uncommon presentation of not the most common disease. And when you have that thing, you should probably be rethinking, right? So that two to three-year age range is where you should be thinking for retropharyngeal. Peritonsor, on the other hand, almost exclusively teenagers, almost exclusively. Again, if you have a four-year-old and you're thinking peritonsillar, I'd say you should probably be rethinking this. Um, so you're 12, 14, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, peritonsillar abscess is way more common. The anterior cervical one is a little bit more interesting because it can come up from a lot of different way, a lot of different etiologies that can promote an anterior cervical infection. Um, but we typically see a sort of a bimodal distribution. Again, like three to four years old, maybe a little bit older than our RPA group. And then you see it peak up again around nine to 10 to 11 years old, a little bit younger than your peritonsil group. Um, And then you have some spatterings of some other ones that are in between. But if you see ones that, if I had a 14 year old with an anterior cervical, I'm starting to think that this might not be the typical pathogens that we think of. I start thinking about expand that differential out, Bartonella, scratch, things like that. That might be a little bit more atypical for what you might see in that etiology for that infection.
1: So my next question is you know, we're talking about infections now. And do other infections cause. Uh, Retropharyngeal abscesses, or these other infections that we're worrying about, do we have to worry about strep strep throat? Should we be testing for strep throat? Yeah, like, um, do viral does viral pharyngitis can that lead to a bacterial infection afterwards?
3: Yeah, it's a wonderful question. Um, And when we talk about the etiology or the what's the pathophysiology behind them, honestly, there's a reason why we talk about them in three different ways because they all arrive from three different presentations or three different pathophysiologies that's going on. And so I would almost caution you to, you have to break it down into each one of those things. So we talk about anterior cervical neck, we talk about peritonser, we talk about retropharyngeal. Um, anterior cervical neck, in general, we're talking the same kind of stuff that looks at cellulitis, that looks at other abscesses, your staph and your strep are far and away your most likely things. Um, and so you have to cover for staff and staph. And that's going to be the number one thing that you're worried about. You're looking at direct extension, whether that's from the skin or intraoral, and that's that's how it's going to rise about. When you're talking about your peritonsillars, you're talking about oral, maybe sinus, and you're, so you're talking about a little bit different things. That's where strep really comes into play. So thinking about strep throat, should we be testing for strep throat? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You have to. Um, and so you're thinking about testing for strep, you're thinking about bacterial invasion posteriorly. Could you have a viral infection that then led to a secondary superbacterial? Absolutely. For both those things, for both those things that we just talked about. One for a viral infection for anterior circles, it's going to activate those nodes, it's going to swell them up, it's going to make them larger and thinner walled, allow bacteria to secondarily get in there. Talking about peritonsil, same process, but you're going to have a nice raw mucosal membrane for bacteria to penetrate in there. So your oral flora, strep, going to get in there. Retropharyngeal is a little bit different. Retropharyngeal uh, changes a lot, and staph falls right off the table. We don't see it anymore. Um, there's a couple of papers that come out that still say you see like one or two, but it's very, very rare. And usually those staff that you get in there is still MSSA as opposed to MRSA, which is a little bit fascinating. And you start seeing weirder stuff, gram negatives, anaerobes start really popping up. And so you see some more bizarre stuff getting in there. And the pathophys behind that one is actually fairly poorly understood. Um, some people purport still direct uh, extension in there. Some people purport that there's bad sciences that drains back there, but we don't really know why some people get those compared to others. Whereas the other ones, I think we have better understanding the lead points of how those things actually arise.
1: My next question is, so I have this kid who's looking sort of sick and say we we changed the, the situation and is not the ED. They're in my urgent care or they're in my My pediatric clinic. What are the things that I need to be looking for that says this kid needs to go to the ED? They, I I just have to send them. They have to be evaluated. I might need to do where they can do, you know, cultures, swabs, uh, imaging, and stuff like that. Or what are the things where I can say I'm a little more reassured? You know, we can watch it. I can give them some antibiotics, maybe, or we can just follow because I think it's viral, and then we can bring them back tomorrow. Like, what are the things we need to be looking out for?
3: Yeah, a wonderful question. Um, the biggest one, the, and the one that, again, we talked about a little bit in the history is one of the obvious questions you should ask, but also as you're doing your physical exam, any sort of change in respiration, right? If they're struggling to breathe or you hear any impingement, you're hearing any kind of stride or anything like that, that is a do not pass go symptom. They need to go immediately. Drooling is one that gets my attention, but it's one that's a little bit hard, right? We talked about retropharyngeal abscesses, You know, they might be 18 months old, two years old. I mean, half those kids are drooling all the time anyway, right? So it makes it a little bit harder to to sort out. But I think it's one that you got to pay attention to. PO intake, you know, obviously kids with sore throats, things like that, they're not going to be wanting to eat or drink as much as they normally do. But a kiddo with a bad infection back there is going to stop all the air because it hurts. Voice changes is one that I would actually pay a lot of attention to, um, more so than usual. Usually when you think about voice changes, you can think about croup, you can think about viral things. If you have a suspicion that this might be bacterial and you have a voice change, that's a pretty significant amount of inflammation. And it's usually implying the inflammation is lower and or posterior as opposed to anterior, which is one of those bad news bears, right? A retropharyngeal abscess, I would say, always needs to be evaluated in the hospital. This is not a something that you treat in the clinic. And you, if you suspect retropharyngeal, they need to be sent. Um, they need to have a more thorough evaluation. Um, and so if you have a voice change, I would put that on there. You'll hear the muffled voice or hot potato voice a lot is the thing that they throw out there. And I don't know. I, I was stupid as a med student. I was stupid as a resident. I guess I'm still a little stupid as an attending, but when people said hot potato voice, I had no idea what that meant. I was like, a hot potato is a food and it's not a voice. A hot potato voice is the sensation of when you have a baked potato and you put it in your mouth and it's steaming and you like it's like caution with first bite and you didn't abide, you didn't hear, hear to that rule. And you go, ooh, I'm too hot, right? That's your hot potato voice that you're doing. The idea is it's guarding for your neck. Right, you are. It hurts to move your neck, so what you're doing is you're guarding it and preventing the musculature from jiggling your throat around because it hurts. So you're guarding your neck. So those type of things, I think, are, are some of the things that I worry about. And then range of motion in the neck, we talked about it a little bit, but any kiddo who's not willing to move their neck concerns me. So I, you know, the opposite of the spectrum. If I'm a pediatrician, I'm in the office. If they have full range of motion in their neck, if they are tolerating liquids. And if I think that it is lateral or peritonsillar as opposed to something that's retropharyngeal, then I'm feeling okay that maybe I can either say this is viral or I can treat this with antibiotics and have them come back and closely follow. The big caveats or anything that's retropharyngeal or anything that's warning signs that need to come in, um, the big caveats is I would closely follow this. Like I said, both of these are set up for abscesses, um, just by the architecture of the neck, the location of the neck that they're in. And there's a good chance that you could do everything right as an outpatient pediatrician. You could recognize the infection. You could start them on the appropriate antibiotic. You could do everything right. And it forms an abscess and you don't have source control. And in which case, it doesn't matter. This infection is going to progress and it's going to need surgical drainage. Um, and so close follow-up. These are not one of those things that you put antibiotics on and you say, I'll see you at the end of the course
0: of antibiotics. These things need to come back daily or, or every other day. And I just to to do some back of things that I'm hearing is kind of some of the bigger things because uh obviously we see throat infections all the time. We see sore throats all the time, difficulty with swallowing, but what I'm hearing is some of these big red flags, and especially to Chris's point of the urgency, um, maybe some drooling, but really neck um uh uh the, the neck pain, um the change in voice Things like Christmas with the fever. Are those fair fair to say that those are kind of the bigger red flag symptoms for a bacterial neck infection that's beyond the typical pharyngitis you see in the clinic?
3: Yeah, and then anything involving the airway, right? Which, again, is going to be hard to distinguish from croup if it's croup season. The other thing I would say is that the seasonality is one of those big clues, too. Um, We think about croup, although with COVID, the seasonality has gone out the window. Um, But typically, you know, we think about croup, we think about October, November, December, more winter. The big seasons for retro are actually spring and summer. And so if you've got this thing that you're like, ah, I'm not sure, and it's summertime, I would probably, again, err on the side of caution on that one. And so seasonality uh, will help you distinguish between these a little bit as well.
0: And we should say we seven actually included one of our favorite – I shouldn't say favorite diseases on the show. Um, but uh, Limier's disease has has been one that has come up in previous sore throat episodes, including – that uh, I still have Cleo's thunder. Uh, that was what Cleo was going to say. But uh, we had a sore throat episode where uh, – Phenomenal medical student, Dr. Becca Raymond Coulter, who is now a phenomenal resident, um, after producing that episode for us, uh, immediately went on service and diagnosed the patient with Lemire syndrome. So it was a uh, great not missed case that I think is very, a fun one to talk about at the very least. Yes, Probably not so a fun cool. one to
2: have. So cool.
0: Yeah.
2: All right. Mary's is pretty darn rare. It is. Um, but you don't want to miss it. So when we are thinking about deep neck infections and sort of the next step in our evaluation, when do we want to be thinking about um, imaging and who should we be getting imaging for?
3: Yeah. So uh, retropharyngeal is, again, the outlier. If there's a take-home point from this entire talk is that retropharyngeal is a different animal um, and it should be treated very, very seriously. In pediatrics, we have one of the best jobs in the world in that the vast majority of diseases in kiddos, kids do fine. They bounce back. Retropharyngeal can be one of those ones that can make kids very, very sick very, very quickly. Retropharyngeal is the outlier. If you suspect retropharyngeal, that is a CT scan, no questions asked. Always, all day long. X-ray isn't going to get there. You can't do ultrasounds to get a good enough distinguishing back there. You need a CT scan. Um, So if you are suspecting a retropharyngeal, then you got to go with a CT scan. A lot of those lines, a little bit of a segue. Sorry, we talked about warning signs. We talked about kind of those things. One of the things that you should keep in mind with the retropharyngeal is that these can occasionally prevent as, present as FUOs. Um, so you can have kiddos who come in with, you know, it's been four or five days of high fevers. You can't figure out what's wrong. It doesn't localize because you can't find a physical exam finding. And if you're 18 months old, how much do you really move your neck around anyway? Um, so just one of those ones that you should just have a little bit of increased index of suspicion for. If you can't localize, you're like, this is an infection. Everything is saying infection. I can't find it. Um, RPA should jump up on that list just a little bit for you. But CT scan all day long for an RPA. If you're looking at the lateral things, uh, an anterior cervical chain infection, uh, cervical adenitis, you don't necessarily need to image all of those. If they have none of those other warning signs that we're worried about, it's fairly early in the infection. I don't know that you necessarily need any imaging at all for those. I think that's one that you can start them on some empiric antibiotic treatment and kind of monitor the progress and see what happens. If you do want to get imaging, uh, you're thinking about does this need drainage or not? Really, that's the question you want to answer. Is is this something that will be amenable to medical treatment or is this encased itself and is large enough that surgical interventions warrant it, it needs to be incised and drained? Um, so if you're thinking that that's a possibility, that's a reason to grab an ultrasound. An ultrasound is all you need. Occasionally, your ENT friends will ask for a CT scan, and that's more to define anatomy if they're going to go in there. Surgical techniques have improved so much, and they're so talented these days that a lot of times an ultrasound's good enough that they'll be able to see what they need to see and make sure that there aren't structures in the way, vessels and nerves, for them to be able to do what they want to do. Peritonsillar abscess, honestly, you should probably never get imaging. Um, unless they have a secondary, like there's extension or there's something weird going on. But your average run-of-the-mill peritonsillar, that's visualized and drained at bedside. There is nothing more you need to do for that. There should be no imaging on that one for the vast, vast majority of those cases. If you're grabbing imaging, this is a
0: this is a peritonsillar that has deviated off the standard pathway for most of them. And let me follow up on that. For the slam-dun peritonsillar abscess that I see, you know, Friday at 4 p.m. in clinic, uh, is it reasonable to try empiric antibiotics over the week and see how they do, or is that immediate? We got to go to the ED evaluation for drainage. I know I'm jumping to management, not to go to the last chapter of the book, but uh, it's something I'm thinking out loud right now. Um, you, got, you got the finger wag of shame at you. I don't, I don't even sorry. know how to interpret that. I'm, bra- jumping I'm breaking up everything. But, uh- no,
3: but I mean, I, th- I think it's a fair question, right? If you've got a slam dunk peritonsor abscess, it's the right age group. It's a 16-year-old who comes in. You can see it. You can visualize it. You feel all around their neck. There's nothing else going on. You see it. You know what this thing is. Um, the kiddo is otherwise fairly well appearing. I would actually advocate that every single one of those should be drained. Um, there's kind of no reason not to. It's really accessible. It's super easy to do. You honestly don't need ENT to drain those. When I was a resident, I drained them at the bedside. Um, and I see some looks on that one. So it's it's Ooh. fairly easy. Um Word of disclaimer, please don't do this unless you've actually seen it and taught how to do it. But if you're going to do it, it's pretty easy. You make a bite block, right? So you take uh, two uh, tongue depressors, put a couple of rubber gloves in between them, put a rubber band over top so that you put them into the – between their teeth so they can't bite down. Right? So we're going to prop their mouth open so they can't do anything about it. You take a three-inch spinal needle. You cut the tip of the protective plastic hub off just so that the little needle extends about a half a centimeter or to a centimeter beyond where the plastic sheath is. So that sheath is going to act as a guard to prevent you from going too deep. It will be a stopgap for you so you can never penetrate deep structures. And then all you do is take that thing and you just poke a couple holes in the back and call it a day. As soon as you poke holes, tell them to lean forward because always the pus runs down their throat and they don't like that. Um, But that's really all it takes and that's the definitive treatment. And so, it's it's literally a five-minute procedure at the bedside. It's tolerated extremely well. You've got older patients, 16-year-olds you know, who are cooperative with you. You can do that at the bedside, start them on some peonium box, send them home, and that thing will get cleared up no problem. So, you'll have source control. And definitive treatment for any abscess is incision and drainage. Um, so, I would actually advocate that that's the, the course. Now, to the more realistic answer of what are you going to do in clinic if you do not feel comfortable draining these things. I think it's reasonable in an older patient, particularly, which is where these age groups are, to start them on empiric antibiotics and have them come back in a day or two. Um, They've got more reserve. They're going to be able to tell you whether things are getting better or not. They're going to be more accurate, reliable historians, physical exam findings. Um, And so I think that's a completely reliable one. I don't know that a peritonsillar necessarily needs to go to the ER unless they are looking sick.
1: So if if I called ENT and they'd be like, oh, you know, we can get them in a day or two, you think that seems reasonable?
3: Yeah, totally. Um, One of the things that we actually did as far as our clinical practice guideline is we sorted out our peritonsolars and made them admit to ENT as opposed to hospital medicine. And we actually received a decent amount of pushback on that one. But the whole rationale was is what was happening is we were having peritonsolar abscesses getting admitted to our service. ENT would go by and drain them at the bedside in the morning and we'd be sending them home. And so now we have a patient that's been admitted. So one, they have an admission charge, and then they were in the hospital for eight hours where if ENT had just gone to the bedside and done it, we would have had them out the door. And so once we put the burden on ENT to admit them onto the service, and therefore they'd explained to their angry attendings in the morning why their list had blown up, magically the ENT uh, residents started showing up the bedside in the yard and draining them. Um, And our admissions for peritons or abscesses reduced by 60%. It's
0: a QI project. Right? Right? Uh, That's Awesome. Uh, and it, it not,
3: not, I'm not knocking our ENT folks. Oh, of course, that is not yeah, a shot, yeah. a
0: shot across the bow. They're incredibly busy.
3: It's just you know we can help them prioritize a little bit.
0: Amazing. I uh, will post a, a YouTube video on how to do this, and uh, uh, Chris and I'll start doing in clinic starting next week. So it, it's so it's one of those. I'm not a big drainage person. I'm not
3: one of those people who gets like you know that rush from like draining things off. But this one's actually a pretty gratifying. That's pretty one cool. To do.
0: I'm I, I haven't seen one at bedside, but maybe uh, I'll try to some expertise. <laughs> I'll
3: YouTube
1: it. <laughs> um, we'll YouTube it. Um,
3: yeah, if you want, any you do a little hurricane spray on the back, just to give them a little bit of some numbing. If you want to be extra kind to them, yeah, tolerated really well. Nice.
2: All right. So back to our case. We do get a (laughs) CT scan of the neck just to see if there's a source of infection that we can find. And it's notable for an area of hypodensity with a ring of enhancement in the retropharyngeal region. So thinking about when we order these CT scans and we're getting imaging, what can we expect to see that will help us determine what the source of infection is and what we're looking at?
3: Yeah, so that hypodensity is what you're looking at, right? So your hypodensity, fluid collection, right? That's really what fluid collection versus inflammation. And so that's what you're looking for. Um, the moment you see that, you're, you know that you've, one, honed in on where this area of infection is going to be. The next question is that ring and or rim enhancing or not. Um, and that's going to help you decide between abscess versus phlegmon. And it turns out that that's actually a fairly big difference. Phlegmon, we're talking about loose collection of fluid that's back there. So there's enough fluid in there, enough pus, enough uh, edema that's building up back there that you can see it, but you can imagine that it's just sort of diffused throughout the tissue. So if you stick a needle in that, it's just going to squish out of the way and you're not going to be able to drain any of that kind of stuff. It's just going to move away from the needle. Whereas if it's an abscess, it's formed this nice rind around it. It's contained. That's what that ring enhancing area is. So when you stick a needle in that, that fluid's got nowhere to go. It's trapped. And so then you can get it out. Um, and so that's what that's the big thing that you're gonna be looking at when you talk to your ENT friends and what they're gonna look at is whether or not this is amenable to drainage or not. And so you can have a horrible I've seen some really bad retropharyngeal infections where, you know, it extends from, you know, C four all the way down to like T five, but it hasn't coalesced. And they're like, We can't help you yet. And that's they're not dodging word, they're not saying eh, they don't want to take it. They just they can't get in there until it's coalesced. They they can poke holes and it's not gonna do any good.
2: And when you say yet Does that mean Mm. that phlegmons, the typical evolution of a phlegmon would be an abscess?
3: Wonderful question, Kalia. It just depends. Um, And there's kind of no way of predicting what's going to happen. Occasionally when you see phlegmons, um, you start them on medical treatment and because it hasn't formed that ring, you're going to penetrate with your antibiotics just fine. You're going to knock that bad boy out. You're going to take care of it and everything's going to be fine. You could start them on all the antibiotics you want and it will still coalesce into an abscess sometimes. And then you're going to have to have drainage. So there's And there there's no real way of knowing when you see a Phlegmon, even on imaging or labs, which way that's going to go. It's one of those things that you have to just watch and follow. So you see a Phlegmon, you start them on medical management, and then you see which way they go down that pathway of medical treatment versus they need surgical drainage.
1: Great.
0: And so it sounds like for as far as the imaging for this patient, um, who's a little bit old for the the RPA, but uh, typically mm-hmm. if we're worried about retropharyngeal abscess, CT is the way to go. Mm-hmm. For peritonsillar abscess, not usually needed, maybe an ultrasound just to help kind of identify the anatomy. Is that right? And it sounds like x-ray, really not a modality that we're using for deep neck infections Maybe with the exception, actually, that we haven't talked about of unvaccinated individuals and checking for things like epiglottitis, would that be? Yeah,
3: absolutely. And so, you know, that's the one time I would say, you know, if you're really trying to distinguish between uh, if there's uh, epiglottitis and so thinking about airway impingement, then I think about an x-ray, right? But that's a different question. I'm not using that for diagnosis. I'm using that for management. And so the only time that I would think about doing neck x-rays for when we're talking about these kind of infections is what is my risk of airway? Where am I at with that? Do I need to intubate? How worried am I about this child? Um, and so if you're trying to answer that question, then get an extra one. It's quick. You get it
0: real fast. And number two, it'll answer that question for you of how, how is that airway doing for you? And maybe this brings up the question of, you know, why are we concerned when we talked about the urgency of needing drainage or uh, whether it's a peritonsillar abscess, a retropharyngeal abscess, or uh, or even, uh, you know, going back to the anterior cervical chain um, lymphadenitis, what is the progression of disease? What are we most worried about? What are the complications that do warrant having someone go to the emergency department or even inpatient care for these types of uh, uh, diagnoses?
3: Yeah, so we'll start with the peritonsillar abscess because that's the simplest one. Honestly, it doesn't do a whole lot for you. I I mean, you don't get terribly sick with them. One, because you have older patients. Um, Number two, because it's pretty – it's diagnosed fairly early in the course. You don't typically see these things progress and linger and now they've been smoldering for a while. Um, They hurt. They're hurt and they're obvious, which means that you make easy diagnosis on them, and they're very amenable to uh, definitive treatment, whether that's drainage or, or antibiotics. Um, so we don't see a whole lot of complications um, or long-term progression from peritonitis or stuff. Anterior cervical ones, uh, the biggest thing you worry about is the kids getting sick. Bacteremia is, is definitely on the table. Um, getting septic from these is definitely on the table. In terms of the bacteria invading any deeper or causing problems – The biggest one that you really worry about is getting into the carotid. Uh, If they get in the carotid sheath that can cause compression of the carotid artery, you can have some pretty nasty things from an anatomical standpoint. Bacteremia and septicemia are kind of the two things that you really worry about uh, from an anterior circle node that goes untreated. Retropharyngeal abscess is one of the fun ones because um, again, these ones are hard to diagnose. They are hard to do on physical exam. You can't see them. And so these ones do oftentimes present a little bit later in the course. The big complication that's a little bit different is they can extend on all- down. Like I said, we, we, I've seen some that extend you know, all the way down to the thoracic vertebrae halfway down mediastinitis is a real phenomenon that we see with these so they go on down backwards and then they invade anteriorly into the mediastinum and those kids get sick they get very very sick these are the ones that end up in the icu um these are the ones that are on hardcore antibiotics and then we talk about going to the operating room because we got to get an infection out but also balancing can they tolerate the procedure um so those kids can get quite quite sick and so mediastinitis is a big one to worry about when we're talking about the retroferential abscesses interestingly enough uh there is a correlation between kawasaki disease um and rpas and so kawasaki disease if you ever see kawasaki disease and then it's got this component of mediastinitis and you're like what's going on there um there's a small percentage it's not a significant but there's a small percentage that will also have a retropharyngeal abscess as a secondary infection on top of that
0: wow that's crazy uh, that's a very interesting know. and i uh, uh good to know rpas really worrisome um when we're looking towards management, obviously abscess needs source control. So, if there is a clear rain enhancing structure or we're clear about an abscess, uh, getting some rubber bands, gloves, and potent hole in it. But as far as the antibiotic choice, what is your go to antibiotics? What are we thinking about? And what are the pathogens that we are targeting?
3: Yeah, wonderful. So, anterior circle again, this is where that breakdown of the three is really critical. And why I stress at the beginning is because the pathogens are different for each of these three things. And so when we talk about deep neck infections, I think there's a little bit of some conflation of saying we can categorize this as all the same thing and it's fine. I look at a lot of the papers and they'll say for deep and neck infections, we recommend this treatment. And the moment I see a paper or an article that writes like that, I immediately start questioning it um, because the pathogens are so vastly different in those three lo- locations that I would worry a little bit about either you're being too broad and therefore covering all three at once or you're being too narrow and therefore missing something. Anterior cervical staph and strep far and away number one, um, and so you you have to have your staff cards. You have to have good MRSA coverage. Um, and then you want to cover strep as well. If it's a big abscess, anytime you have abscess, anaerobes needs to cross through your mind. And I don't care where you're talking to the body, right? And abscess equals, you should at least consider anaerobic coverage. Um, and so therefore, I think Clinda makes a really nice choice. I'm a, I'm a big fan of clindamycin for my anterior circle chain things. It gets me my staff. It gets me my strep. It gets me any possible anaerobes that are in there. Granted, you do have to be worried a little bit about MRSA um, and your clindamycin just depending on where you're practicing and and your sensitivity rates. Um, but that's, that's sort of my go to for that one. It takes a care of a lot of those ones without any issue. Peritonsler um strep starts going way up and your staff is still present, but it starts decreasing. This one I feel less strongly about what you want to pick on this one. I I would still go Clinda just because I think again it gets you nice coverage of your strep and your staff with a little nod to interrupts But if you wanted to go more towards something with augmented and sacrifice a little bit of your staff coverage to get some increased strep activity, I'd be okay with that. Um, I wouldn't fight you on that one. I think that's an okay choice. I ring just because I've seen staff do some nastier things, and I'd kind of rather cover for that than not at the outset. If you do have a treatment failure, though, um, you know, going to augmentin um, as a secondary line, I think is is totally reasonable on that one. For RPAs, that's where I really, really would push you to go towards a unison augmentin uh, approach. Uh, staff, like I said, falls off the table. There are some papers that report it. Um, And usually those ones are the kids who are really, really sick. Mediastinitis. If you have a kid that's got that extension on down or is sicker than anticipated for RPAs, then I think you have to cover for staff. But those kids, we're talking ICU. They're going to be on big guns anyway. We're thinking... Banks have triaxone plus minus flagellae. Like, we're thinking huge guns to make sure they're covering everything as it is. Your average run-of-the-mill RPA, though, staff's probably not entering the equation. You're looking at strep, and you're looking at weird streps, right? Not just the strep pyogenes. You're looking at strep mitis, strep viridins. You're looking at some weird gram-negatives, uh, Corynebacterium, clostridium, some nice serious species, um, and then anaerobes are definitely in the mix because again, this thing's probably been brewing for a little bit longer than those first two infections we talked about. Um, and so, I like augmentin gets me very, very nice coverage for all of those things, and I, I think you're not sacrificing any of your coverage, and you have some pretty nice cytality killing power to go along with it.
1: So, when we're talking about all these different bugs, you know, we talk about impure coverage, and then obviously, if if we get cult- culture data, we're obviously going to try to narrow our coverage to whatever culture we're culturing. What are Things that are useful and what aren't useful. Cause, you know, one thing that we're seeing in the adult world is u- the use of doing interneres swabs for MRSA. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of more evidence showing that if your MRSA is negative, then you might have, you know, it's a negative predictive value for cellulitis, for endocarditis, for all these other things that we're doing. Do we see some, some of this data creeping into our, in the PEDS world, especially in, in this area?
3: Yeah. It's a wonderful question. Um, and I, Philosophically, the, the the utility of swabbing nares is always a really interesting one, right? So there's a Journal of Hospital Medicine article out there on things we do for no reason section. And MRSA swabbing nares is one of the things that comes up, right? So a big VA initiative with very little data to actually back up its utility is. Um, we are sort of back leveraging that into how does it inform our practice, which is a fascinating thing, right? We have got data. We don't know how to use it. So now we're trying to use it in a different way. In pediatrics, different thought process. In general... Kiddos, especially if we're talking younger kiddos, our RPA kiddos, they're not colonized with the nasty stuff. They haven't been out in the world long enough, so like the rate of MRSA colonization, things like that. Now, certainly, if it's running in the family, yeah, maybe. Um, Honestly, I wouldn't go swabbing around in in the nose because I don't know what I'm doing with that information. I don't know how well it correlates to what's going on back there in true infection. The exception I would say is doing a rapid strep test. I think I want to know. And regardless, clindamycin, unison, whatever we're using to treat this, is going to treat strep, right? But the reason that I care more about this is just documentation in case down the road, we're looking at any of the post sequelae from strep infections, right? We're talking about rheumatic fever, chorea, things like that, that we do occasionally see pop up and just having that glomerulonephritis, right? So having that information may be useful in the future. So I care less about that for my acute treatment and more about informing for good practice, good management of that patient uh, as continuity of care going forward.
0: And how about treatment duration? Any insights in treatment duration? I feel like this is something that always comes up. Is it until you're seeing improvement or do you stick with a very set number that's divisible by five or a football score? Or?
3: Football score, man. It's the only way to go, right? So you're doing 7, 10, 14, 21. I, I want to do a study where we do nothing but prime numbers and see what happens. I think that would be a fabulous study. Um, you're only allowed to pick prime numbers as far as your antibiotic duration. Um, no, You know, I think about how deep is the infection? How sick were they? And do I have good source control or not? Um, And that last one, thinking about was it drained? Um, So if I have – let's say I have anterior cervical adenitis and they're actually doing a lot better on medical management. My NT folks say, you know what? We don't want to go mucking around in there unless we have to. Um, I'm probably going to err on the side of treating that one a little bit longer. I might – instead of doing 7 to 10, I might do 10 to 14 on that one because I want to make sure I penetrate in there for a long enough duration to kill everything that's in there. Peritonsors are the wusses of the group. 7 to 10 is all you ever really need, whether it's drained or not. That should be good to go. RPAs, I'm thinking 14 kind of minimum um, with the possibility of going all the way out to 21. I would say that this is not one of those ones that I would say once or better, I would call it a day. Because again, we've got architecture that's in place, right? So you think about your osteomyelitis, you think about your septic arthritis, things where you have structure for bacteria to invade and live in. And there's a reason why we treat those things for so long. Because if there's any that's still in the, any bacteria that survive living in that architecture, it's gonna come right back. So we wanna make absolutely sure on eradication. So this is one where I think a little bit of overkill is probably okay. So whatever you're thinking in your head as far as like, oh, it's an anterior circle, it's pretty easy. Seven days, I'd bump that to 10. If you're thinking 10 days, I'd bump that to 14. Like I'd err on the side of over treating these things to make sure you eradicate and prevent recurrence.
2: I was wondering when we need to be concerned about something else going on. Say it's an unvaccinated patient, when do we need, to- To be concerned about epiglottitis or some other um, type of infection?
3: That's a wonderful question. So I think I'd break this down into three different groups um, as I think about this. And one is that unvaccinated illness. The big one there is going to be epiglottitis, hemophilus, and influenza type B, um, HIB, right? And so thinking about epiglottitis, those kids are going to be sick, 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 sick. This is not one of those ones where you're in the office and saying, Eh, do I need to send them or not? You're going to take one look at that kid and be like, that kid is toxic. They're tripoding, They're leaning forward in the sniffing position to try and keep that airway open. They're drooling. They look like stink, right? And so you're going to send those kids to the ER right away. One of the big also things that we always talk about in epiglottitis, which is one of those like violating test taking procedures, right? Whenever you talk about taking a standardized test, you always pick the least invasive answer. This is one of those ones that violates that. You secure that airway. Secure the airway, secure the airway, secure the airway. In the real world, um, this is one that I would get either ENT or anesthesia to the bedside because that is going to be a tricky airway to intubate. And the more you try and jab a tube in there and something that's swollen, it's going to swell up on you. You can actually get yourself into a lot of trouble. Um, You want experts there to secure that airway. But epiglottitis, so unvaccinated kiddo, really, really sick, high fevers, profuse drooling. You may even see pus when you look in their mouth. Like You're looking in there and you're like, this is pus. I would also just keep in mind that we are seeing some epiglottitis even in fully vaccinated children. Um, we're seeing non-typable H flu. I've seen a couple of cases of MRSA. I had a kiddo that was admitted to my service um, two years ago that had croup. And after the first day of treatment was not getting any better. And my team's like, oh, we'll just keep blasting them. I was like, anytime the kid doesn't respond the way you think it is, you need to go back and rethink. And so we were like, this kiddo is just, they're not looking good. They look sick. And so I called ENT and I could almost hear their eye roll on the phone of saying, you're consulting us for group. It's like, just come take a look. And they're like, sure enough, this kid had epiglottitis, ended up being MRSA. Um, so one of those ones that you just want to keep on your radar. Um, so that's, that's kind of box A is the unvaccinated, your mimickers. It's sort of your box B, so your other infections. Um, so you think about things like tuaremia uh, will give you some big nodes up there. Usually those kids are quite sick. Um, usually we're talking about hunting history, skinning rabbits is the classic thing. But any kind of hunting or being around animals, um, slaughtering farms, things like that, you can see this. Um, so tuaremia is one. Bartonella ocular glandular disease is another one that you should be aware of. Um, so anything with the eyes or if they have a big spleen or liver, that might clue you in that this might be a little bit... Uh, epitrochlear nodes, uh, lymph nodes just above the elbow is just one of those ones that store away forever and ever and ever. There's very little that does, that gives you nodes right there. And that's going to be Bartonella. So that can be a big mimicker of this rheumatologic disease, things like that. It can be a mimicker. The third category is the, you missed it and it ain't infection. Rheumatologic disease. You have some, you know, Castleman's, rose Dorothy, things like that, that give me like big nodes all over can do some things like this. But then hemoc, we talked about head and neck cancer is not as common in children, but it's one of those ones that can be a mimicker. And so I get nervous when I have a kiddo who comes in with a cervical lymph, or they say it's cervical adenitis is the, is the main diagnosis. They got this Goomba on the side of the neck, and it ain't warm. It ain't hot to the touch. It's minimally tender, and it's more tender just because it's mass effect as opposed to actually anything else going on. They have plus yeah plus minus fever, and their CRP is undetectable. That makes me nervous. And this is one of those reasons why you always, 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 always review your own CTs. Um, we had one that was admitted uh, just a few months ago that came in with cervical adenitis. And when we looked at the CT scan, it had this big homogeneous mass on there. There were no septations. There was no fluid. There was no loculations. It was all just this one homo- homogeneous goomba. And that kiddo ended up having Burkitt's. So just one of those ones that you always should be on the watch for. You don't want to be having this cancer that you've been sitting on for three days without having, you know, tumor lysis labs running on that. That can get you into trouble in in these type of uh, tumors. Um, So just keep in the back of your mind that sometimes, you know, the neck goomba is not always infectious.
0: You know, one of the things I think that comes up uh, or had been controversial is with really bad sore throat or strep throat is, is there a role for steroids? Um, For these more uh, worrisome abscesses, especially when there is concern for airway obstruction or just the inflammation causing this mass defect, is there any role for steroids in these deep neck infections that we've been talking about?
3: Yeah, you hit on it. The the only time I ever think about steroids in these things is airway. If I need it for their airway, then I need it for their airway. Airways, first and foremost, I don't care about anything else. I need that airway, then you're going to give them steroids. If they aren't having any trouble with the airway, then I would steer clear of steroids altogether. There was actually a paper that came out in Pediatrics in November of this past year. So It's just a few months old. It's a fairly new paper um, that said that the usage of steroids, corticosteroids, and retropharyngeal abscesses uh, decreased hospital cost, decreased utilization, and decreased usage of opioids. It's pretty nice. What they didn't say in their conclusions, but they did find, is that it made you almost twice as likely to get repeat CT scans. It made you 2.7 times more likely to be readmitted within seven days. And they did not calculate their hospital cost on readmission or OR charges, which I think is fascinating, right? So we looked at a measure that said, yeah, we made them more comfortable. Sure, steroids are going to decrease swelling. But what did we sacrifice? We sacrificed our ability to track these patients by a physical exam. They're more comfortable. Now the range of motion of their neck is improved. Everything's better. I don't know what to do anymore. So I have to get a repeat CT scan to see if it's improving. Or I send them home and they end up getting readmitted. And so you know, that masking effect that steroids can have really, really concerns me. And then we talked a little bit about tumors that can be up there, right? And anytime we're talking about getting steroids, you get yourself into trouble real quick with that. So you know, I'm very, very hesitant to give steroids unless I absolutely need them. Yeah, you can help with swallowing. Yeah, you can help with pain control, and if you need them for airway, sure.
0: But you got to know what you're doing. You got to know what you're dealing with first and foremost. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. This has been great. I again, I, I feel like I've this is something that I have feel like I talked about on wards and have a whole new appreciation and understanding. And it's great to, to see how someone who actually knows what they're talking about uh, can, can teach on these topics. And so Let's not get
3: carried um, away here. Just because I speak from a point, it doesn't mean I actually know what I'm talking about, right? Like that's, that's true in as well. I feel like that's one of the big things that we mislead. Residents, junior faculty, things like that. Like just because somebody up there that speaks with confidence does not
0: mean that they know what they're talking about. Uh, preach. Uh, but it, it does sound good. I mean, what you're saying sounds reasonable. So uh, I buy it. I buy it. It's all the barriers. If you're buying what I'm selling, then I'm doing my job. (laughs) Um, And kind of looking back at some of the things that we've talked about, are there main take home points that you think are important? For listeners, whether they're students, residents, advanced practitioners, uh, attendings, are there key points that you think people should walk away with from this episode about deep neck infections?
3: Yeah. And so number one is take RPAs very, very seriously. They can make you sick, right? And so we talked about the big symptoms of that, but worrisome symptoms, or if you're concerned for a retropharyngeal abscess, that warrants evaluation, that warrants CT scan. Do not go stingy on an RPA evaluation. Um, so take those ones seriously. Um, Number two, I would say is that treat all three infections differently. Don't lump them together. Anterior cervical neck infection, cervical adenitis is distinct and different from a peritonsary, which is distinct and different from a retropharyngeal. They have different bugs, different pathophysiology, different etiologies, and they warrant different treatment considerations. Steroids, stay away from them unless you absolutely need them for the airway. If they do have airway impingement or involvement, then use them. And that's also a do not pass go symptom. That one warrants uh, consideration. Lab-wise... White counts, get rid of it. They don't correlate well. There's actually a slight negative correlation value to patient improvement with white counts, which is fascinating. Different in adults, pediatrics only, different in adults, um, pediatrics only. CRPs are pretty decent, but the number one indicator of patient improvement is range of motion of the neck. There's no specific physical exam. Range of motion of the neck will help you localize the infection. It will also tell you if it's improving. If the range of motion of the neck is improving, then you're penetrating and killing what you need to kill. I'd say that's the that's the big one that I would take away for students and residents, especially that physical exam is
0: so key. Awesome. Outstanding. And I guess this final question, is there anything that you'd like to plug or anything that you'd like our listeners to go check out and and see after listening to this episode? Oh my goodness! Uh, nothing from my standpoint. My goodness, I I, I don't. You know, I,
3: I, merchandise. When when do I get in on that? I want. Right, a, the, we'll yeah. put the merchandise, and I want my name on, like as recommended by or whatever. I like uh, one out of one. Travis Crooks recommends. Um, no, I I I think that the biggest thing that I would plug or recommend is uh, just when you're evaluating research and you're evaluating. Uh, things that come out is just being mindful of what you're looking at, what you're reading, right? So we referenced an article in Pediatrics that's the big journal in PEDS. Um, and just having a critical eye to that not taking that with, oh, and look at the abstract and looking at the result and saying, oh, we're done here. Look at their outcomes and what they're actually measuring. Uh, it's important.
0: Excellent. A, a great lesson, Elena, and we, a great lesson to end on and we will get you uh, a certificate of uh, uh, admitting privileges to cash Children's Hospital. Uh, we'll... uh well, first dibs on swag when our –
3: And our I'll tee up that up
2: swag initiative. I'm happy to. All right. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you got
0: it. I mean, why, why wouldn't you, right? I mean, I'd be a proud, proud supporter of the swag initiative. All right. All right. All well, right. we'll make I'll it happen. It. We'll do it. If, uh, if listeners to the show want to contribute uh, ideas, uh, email us at thetripcenters at gmail.com. If you're interested in swag, uh, a quick poll. We'll, we'll see if we made it happen what a great episode uh, you were a lot of fun to to get to thank hang out you. with and so thank you again for coming on we really appreciate having you on the Oh, uh, the
3: pleasure has been all mine I, like I said I could not have been happier when I was asked to do this I was uh, so excited I was like a puppy dog with this whole bowl of food um, just tail wagon <laughs> um, so just just thrilled to be here um, if you can ever find an excuse to invite me back for whatever reason I'm
0: happy to come back love it absolutely. Fantastic.
2: This has been another episode of The Cribsiders.
0: It's for the kids.
2: Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds, newsletters, on our website, www.thecribsiders.com.
0: We are committed to providing you with high-value practice, changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at at Gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer, Cleo, for this episode and our executive (laughs) producer, Nick Lee our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for joining. I've been Justin Lee Burke.
2: I've been Clear Rochott.
1: And this has been Chris the Chi-Man Chi. Thank you. And good night.
0: Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.bcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.